From Sin Media in Melbourne, you're listening to Great Minds Don't Think Alike, a podcast all about neurodiversity. Is Christian, hello everybody, good to be back. So we'll be talking about a few things, of course, this episode, uh, first of which is something called dis, um, executive functioning uh, or executive dysfunction. And the uh, other will be unspell, which is a, a spelling system designed for people with dyslexia to help them learn to read. Yes, Project Unspell. And uh, lastly, I'll be talking about, uh, we'll be talking about, but um, this is a documentary about autism made in India that I saw that's called The New Girl in Class. So, um, yes, uh, just for those of you who don't know, if you're listening to us right now, normally obviously know we're on there, but we're also on iTunes. We also have a WordPress um, that we're happy to get submissions for all the time. So just send those to GMDTA dot media at gmail dot com. Um, remember also to like us on Facebook. Great minds don't think alike. Search that up; it'll come up. Like us there for all the up- updates of upcoming episodes and polls and events and ways you can get involved um, in the show as well yourselves. So yes, thank you for joining us, and uh, please enjoy this episode. Hi everyone. You're here with Daniel and Christian, and we're going to be talking about something that doesn't get discussed often enough, and it's only come to my attention recently, even though this seems to have been affecting me for a long, long time. And unfortunately, it's such a shame that it doesn't get much airtime. It's called executive dysfunction, or executive functioning. Dysfunction is the disorder aspect of it. Now, a lot of you probably haven't heard of that, and it's a big problem in the autism community but a lot of people don't associate it with the autism spectrum. And basically, what it is on the surface, it looks like procrastination. You're putting off something you know you should do or even something you want to do, but you put it off for some reason. Your mind blocks it. It could be something like brushing your teeth in the morning, having a shower, or doing schoolwork, or even doing a hobby, be that playing an instrument or even just watching a DVD or writing, if that's something you do. Even doing household chores or getting out of bed, it's a really big problem and can really affect your daily activities badly. And it affected me very badly in high school, especially in year nine. But I didn't know what it was. I thought I was just simply putting things off because I didn't want to do them, I thought. And even things I thought I wanted to do, I I thought it meant, oh, then maybe I don't want to do them or I just don't like them enough. But it, it turns out that's not the case at all. Why was Ness never brought to my attention previously? <laughs> well, yeah, it, it does seem to be a, a, a rather new thing. I mean, I, I guess with all of these like psychological uh, phenomena or, or conditions or um, accessibility needs or what have you, uh, they do take a while to be taken seriously. So, yeah, something like executive dysfunction. I'd be curious to learn from you, Daniel, exactly how I can see why people would think it just simply is procrastination. So what's actually happening, especially considering you're someone who experiences this yourself, what is actually happening underneath that and why it isn't just simply laziness? I can certainly relate to people thinking I'm lazy when I'm not being someone with dyspraxia, but um, executive dysfunctioning, what how would you unpack it and explain uh, exactly what well, is happening underneath? Well, what it seems to me is it's not knowing where to start. Like, for example, just as a random example, if I got out of bed, which would be hard for someone like me, I, when my alarm goes off, I tend to ignore it because I'm comfortable where I am. But then, but if it was something like a hobby, if I wanted to get up and, I don't know, I wanted to practice the piano... Well, it's like, okay, what book do I start with? Do I start with scales? Do I start with an actual piece? Should I go slowly or go at the speed the piece was written? And even if you know what you should be doing, it's just so hard getting started. I don't know what it is. My mind just really blocks, even if that's something I want to do. Or or it could be singing. It could be even watching a DVD. That happens to me a lot. I want to watch a DVD, but at the same time, I want to surf the internet, and I can't do the two at once. But... I don't know, I know how to put a DVD on. You just throw it in, and if you've got a Blu-ray, you just throw it in and the TV turns on and it goes straight to the the menu. But for some reason, my mind tells me I don't know where to start. Or it will tell me, oh, but you see, you have to get off the couch to do that and you have to leave your tablet or your laptop. and Or even just getting up to make a cup of tea. 
it, my mind tells me I don't know where to start, even if I know exactly where to start. And if it is something like, for example, TAFE work, where I may actually not know where to start genuinely, it's near impossible. Mm. Especially at home where there are a lot of distractions, unlike, say, somewhere like a library. Well, you, people might say there are lots of distractions in a library, but you see, studying in a library is much easier for me because it is a place where you study. That's actually the idea of a library. It mm. provides information so you can study. Yeah, very, yeah, very much so. Oh, for, for a student, definitely. That's definitely a, a common tactic. doesn't always work for everyone, that one, though, because uh, if you have you know, sensory needs or um, ADHD, people actually find that it's that thing of um, theoretically it's quiet, um, but if you're in the large group of people where everyone's trying to be silent, that just means that like all the little sounds, like rustling a paper, pen mm. scratching away, just get amplified and you get you know, you feel awkward if you know you're breathing mm. a bit loudly or whatever. So yeah, it doesn't work for everyone, but um yeah, it does well, work for some. But mm. yes, uh just that common theme you were speaking before, um, about not knowing where to start does obviously strike me as as something that really is rather simple to address. As as in terms of um having a colleague or uh, or having an employee um, in the work situation or or just living with someone who has who struggles with executive functioning or has uh, executive dysfunction it really is a rather simple thing to address just to tell them what the first step is or to remind them or even just to arbitrarily select something that they can do first yes, but rather than presenting them with a big lumpy task oh, but you see you need another person there if you're in the house by yourself then it's really hard. I will also say the other problem with it is that working out your priorities, what's a priority that you that you should put forward as opposed to what you want to put first. For example, like, I mean, say my first priority should actually be my TAFE work because I've got, say, if I've got an assignment due in a day or two. But, of course, the anxiety also can help trigger it. You put something off because it might be due to a fear of failure. Your mind blocks it because it's scared of failing, but... The more you put it off, the more likely you are to fail. Hmm. It's very, it almost seems like self-sabotage, but it's hard to control. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's deliberate self-sabotage. It's, um, yeah, oh, it's, it's not deliberate self-sabotage. No, it's almost like a survival tendency to find um, short-term solutions to immediate problems that definitely don't solve it in the long term. It's, it's a bit like um, a psychological equivalent of... Um, uh, you know, sweating, say, if you're in the desert. Like, mm. yeah, you know, if you sweat, um, the evaporation is going to cool you down in the short term, but in the long term, it's going to completely dehydrate you and will mm. kill you. Um, mm. So, yeah, putting it off is going to put something at bay in the short term. The anxiety, the difficulty with completing a, a TAFE assignment, let's say. But obviously, in the long term, it's going to absolutely ensure that you do, that you do fail. Yes. Um, so, yeah, and still using the words putting it off. Of course, you can see how, how it can seem to people as just being, oh, okay, the type of procrastination that everybody does. The other thing I think I might ask you, Daniel, is um, previous experience. Does that also, like, giving yourself, especially if these are tasks that you've come across again and again, so everything from watching a DVD to completing a TAFE assignment, would it help to have a... Or, have you tried having um, a go-to sort of first step for these like common tasks that you just arbitrarily select? Not really, to be honest. Because, like, I mean, even if someone, even if I remind myself what the first step was, I will. It will. I will say that it, it can often also lead to not learning from your mistakes. You find you find an approach doesn't work, but that approach becomes a habit because hmm. it was the one you did first. And you keep doing it over and over and over, even though it doesn't work. And finding another approach, it's like rewiring of the brain, it almost seems. Well, yeah, you, you do have to make sure that it doesn't become too entrenched. But, I mean, obviously, mm. it's hard to stop a habit. It's easier to you know, re replace it with another habit. So, mm. I mean, you know, it's not an answer just to go, okay, this doesn't work, so I'm not going to do it anymore if you have nothing else to do. Mm. Um, of course, if given the choice between what you know and what you've been doing for a while and isn't working. And the other option is just this black hole of, you know, nothingness. There's no option B, then you'll just stick with option A, yeah. even if it's faulty. That's what it feels like. It definitely feels like that. And so, and it certainly doesn't help if I, I mean, I know it seems like laziness, but it certainly doesn't help if then people start seeing me as lazy and not, not really caring whatsoever about, about the consequences and being portrayed that way when you're already giving yourself enough heartache as it is. And the person then tells you, 
well, you're lazy, you're you're useless, and you need to, and basically you need to improve yourself. It's like, yeah, thank you. I already felt rotten as it was, and now you've just made me feel worse. That well, doesn't help. Yeah, the, yeah. The only helpful thing I can see from there is just telling to someone. Well, you need to improve yourself, or especially, you know, kind of saying oh, mm. these are some helpful strategies mm. for self improvement or whatever. That's mm. one thing. Calling someone lazy or useless, or I mean, you know, more and more, you you talk to psychologists now, and they're, and they're saying that these are certainly not things that help. There's there's kind of this myth that that is supposed to give someone a wake up call, and that's supposed to jolt them into action, when really that just brings them down further. And yeah, yeah. I will say actually, though. With coming up with solutions, like putting out a goal-setting plan, that often does work when you do it, but it's then keeping it up. Mm. It's, well, it's then keeping it up because the executive dysfunction is still there. So you're making plans and you find it is working, then all of a sudden you fall back onto odd habits. Mm. Old habits, should I say, not odd habits. <laughs> I guess yeah. it can be both. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that's always, uh, you know, when, when they talk about any kind mm. of mental health improvement sort of or, or progress mm. being made you know people expect it to be to be linear people you know think okay well uh, you know every day i'm going to earn i know 20 more productivity points or something and it's always going to be on this steady incline but you know in in reality it's a bit more of a curvy sort oh, of line yeah. you backslide you know uh, oh, a couple that... of steps forward a step back and going backwards is, is often i'm often heard this is something like, that does help me with not thinking about it too much and not letting it get me down is that yeah, going backwards can be a good thing. Like, I, I often do find if my confidence goes down, it's likely to then, to then go up again. It's going to contrast. Hmm. But and I, do, I do tell myself that. And that often does help, actually. That's a, that's a good thing. Tell the person with executive dysfunction, well, you're at, at the low point here because you had to be in this low point to get to the high point next. Hmm. I find that actually... Do, I've read that in an article that was actually about... It was about ambition overload, which we previously talked about, but that actually, can, I think, can apply to someone with executive dysfunction, I would say, because what often, because I, I keep putting things off that I like, I often start feeling I'm not passionate about anything, I don't know what my thing is, or, but then, then of course, at some point, I'm going to feel that way regardless, but it's not going to be permanent. It'll go back and forth. The thoughts, These thoughts will come again, but they'll eventually go away, and you'll feel good again but don't expect them to go away completely. Hmm. Like, yeah, basically that helps you learn from the mistakes, I will say. But this is only something... I'm still learning about this, but I can relate to it very much. Hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, I I think a lot of people still are because it's quite a new concept. And also you were... um, We were talking just before about... I was speaking of strategies for living or working with someone who who has um, executive dysfunction and you said, well, that's very different if you're by yourself. But there is also this thing that sort of helps of like almost like internalizing or imagining what another person would say to you. And uh, Sorry, a helpful thing that another person would say to you or someone else in your life has been saying to you or internalizing it or kind of stepping outside briefly and um, kind of telling yourself what you know you need to hear, especially if you're alone, you know, out loud works fine but in your head as well i find is you know obviously a rather it is a it is a helpful thing to kind of be that other person briefly yes um, yeah i know it sounds odd but yeah in, internalizing good messages good messages mm. yeah because i mean thing. internalizing bad ones is always is always a big struggle i, I mentioned on my last appearance when we were talking about ambition overload how sometimes in high school I felt I couldn't pat myself on the back for something I was proud of because people would take that as being arrogant and boastful and therefore they would knock me back when I was just trying to I was just trying to boost my self-esteem and now you've just lowered it down again and I internalized that to the point where I stopped feeling good about myself for a long time. Mm. Yeah, that's um and that's something that seems to pop up quite a bit when it comes to like discussions of autism I find in particular. Mm. Uh this idea of like the boasting sort of element. This, um, well, I know in Australia there's a tall poppy syndrome, mm. but um, but it's it's kind of it's more widespread than just Australia. This this mm. whole this idea of um, modesty. You, you know, you, you have to be modest. You, you can't toot your own horn. Other people can compliment you, but when you're talking about you know your own achievements or abilities, you always have to downplay it. So, you know, if someone says, oh, you're an amazing singer, Daniel, you're not expected to go, well, you can say thank you or, you know, I'll, 
oh yeah thanks wow yeah i guess i am you either just say thank you or if you make a comment you have to say oh no i'm i'm I'm, yeah. I'm all right i'm you know it was it was nothing it was uh, <laughs> <laughs> no i don't yeah, I don't think that's necessary. I mean, no one likes a boaster, and I mean, like there are there are movie directors who I think pat themselves on the back way too much and <laughs> think way too highly of themselves. But mm. you know, there's nothing wrong with giving yourself a pat on the back. Oh yeah. no, well, yeah, no, exactly, and, and especially if you're someone who you know, whose self esteem is rather vulnerable, that's certainly something that you do need to actually like. No, mm. it's it's not adding to an already. It's not feeding your ego. It's not necessarily feeding your ego. Mm. It's kind of guarding yourself, I guess, against like these other sort of messages of inadequacy and uh, things that will damage your your self esteem, which uh, which people don't realize. Mm. No, it's frustrating. But um, yeah, because you know there are other times, of course, where you know, you might receive a compliment for someone and you say thank you, and they say, oh, you know, don't thank me. It's the truth, or something like that. Mm. So I mean, you know, there are. And false modesty as well is obviously a very cloying, you know, grating thing yeah. to hear when it's obvious that someone is putting it on. <laughs> yes. So, look, I mean, there's boasting, but then there's, you know, just acknowledging that, yes, okay, you have achieved something great or you are good at something um, mm. without going on and on and on. Yes. And one thing I do want to say in regards to executive dysfunction is that it's a shame that when we see portrayals autism and Asperger's in the media, especially with school students, high school students, they often have show them excelling academically because, you know, they obsess with their schoolwork and therefore and therefore they get really high grades, whereas I had executive dysfunction and therefore I put off a lot of my schoolwork and got very, very mixed grades. Mm. I only did well in the subjects I enjoyed. Yeah. Well um yeah. Only doing well in the subjects you enjoy, I think, is still like a common... If you look oh. at all of the media portrayals, it still is that common thread. Oh, it's common, but but I mean, executive dysfunction, and the, I would like it if that got some focus sometimes, like the putting off things, even things that you want to do, because even for subjects I liked, I did sometimes sabotage myself in them too. Hmm. That definitely happened. Yeah, it's... It's interesting that you say that because, you know, I, I could kind of see I'm looking at all these stories that are told, especially, you know, long form, I guess, like kind of cinematic or, or literary stories. And certainly with the cinematic ones, I can definitely see like where they would slot in. Mm. It's, you know, that, you know, they're kind of excelling quietly, then they get recognized and things are going really great. Then it's the big tournament or whatever. And, you know, the day, the night before or the hour before, they suddenly have you know, this. This is the before the third act where mm. you know, things are going bad. They have this moment of self doubt. Things are going bad, and then they have mm. to bring themselves out the rut for the big, the big mm. exciting happy climax. So yeah, that's exactly where. If you're going to put it in somewhere, in one place at least, that's probably where executive dysfunction I think could sit. Although it would be a bit artificial, just kind of plonk it at one particular point. Mm. Remembering, of course, you know, the media, and I guess we are the media as well to some extent, mm. but I, we're not that kind of media. Yes, it is still concerned, of course, with – it's a main source of information for lots of people. Information slash entertainment, infotainment yes. is very much in these days. So, yeah, it wants to represent things accurately if it can, but it's this thing of like, oh, yes, we want to be real and edgy, but we also want to tell, you know, a good story. And not all of the realities make for a good story, yeah. per se. But they still, in the traditional sense, in the traditional Western sense. But if they don't appear in mainstream media, then they are not. Uh, you know, they're not really taken in. People never hear of it because the reality is that's where most people get their world knowledge from. Yes, and yeah, it's a real shame. I had not heard about this until a couple of weeks ago. I didn't even know what it was called. But it seems to have been something I've been suffering from for years. Yeah, and, I mean, it made high school a nightmare at times, and it even affects my day-to-day activity as as it is. Like, even I've got a lot of things on my head, and I feel busy, but at the same time I also feel quite lazy because I'm only working two days a week. I'm doing one subject online, so I'm at home a lot. And even though I'm doing I'm doing volunteer work, I still feel like I'm bludging compared to other people. Hmm. No, yeah, I I can definitely understand that, this whole feeling busy but not busy because mm. you've got lots of things on your mind or lots of things to plan. Or, mm. um, But, I mean, there is also that other thing of, 
you know, you might think that other people around you are, are judging you as you judge yourself, mm. um, when in reality they're probably too busy judging mm. themselves as well and wondering yes. what you're thinking of them. Um, yeah. It's this whole emperor's new clothes thing. Mm. Uh, you know, ev- everyone's everyone to a certain extent mm. is wondering about how they're looking and uh, mm. both physically and kind of in their behavior and their achievements and their day-to-day, you know, what they're doing with their lives. So, mm. Yes. Yeah. But you know, the last thing I will say, I guess, is I do find it kind of annoying sometimes when people say, oh, yes, I know, we all procrastinate. It's part of the human condition. Yes, it's part of the human condition, but I don't think it gets everyone... I don't think it affects everyone to the same extent and get and takes them down to the same extent. Oh, no, definitely yeah. not. And, yeah, this this happens like left, right, and centre whenever you talk about any kind of mental health or neurological conditions because, yeah, that's the standard explanation that people uh, tend to give out. They, they start with what's common to, to most people or common to your audience at least, you know, what they mm. will have experienced. Like, oh, you know when this happens to you? Yeah, mm. well, this condition is kind of like that. But then if they don't totally make the leap from, you know, themselves to you, they still think, oh, okay, so we're all a bit insert, you know, mm. ex- we all have a bit of in- executive dysfunction, we're all a little bit autistic, we're all a little bit dyslexic or, mm. um, or whatever, which is the unfortunate byproduct of doing that. But, mm. I mean, unfortunately, that's the only way really to, to get people to listen to you often is, you know, talk yes. about them first. Yes. Because <laughs> people love talking about themselves and thinking of themselves. Mm. And, yes, which mm. is selfish, but everyone's a little bit selfish. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> you are yourself. Of course, you live as yourself. You're going to be selfish at some point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, yes, it's the degree. Mm. Uh, and I think if on the surface it looks like procrastination, but if it's to a certain degree where you're even putting off things you want to do – because you you know you don't you feel like you don't know where to start then i would say it's gone to executive dysfunction it's mm. not just simple procrastination yeah mm. indeed so yeah we we hope this was illuminating for those of you who like me have only very recently uh, and and like daniel indeed have only really very recently heard of executive functioning and dysfunction so um Thank you for listening to Daniel and I. We'll be with you very shortly talking about Project Unspell. Hello, Christian and Daniel again. We're here to talk to you about a rather recent um, innovation called Project Unspell, developed by a Russian linguist who, upon moving with his son to the English-speaking part of the world, realized how different, how much less consistent the English spelling system, English orthography was to the Russian spelling system, which was very phonetic. That was one thing. But also recognized, of course, you know, how much of a nightmare the English spelling system is for someone with dyslexia. So developed this new alphabet called Unspell, which basically is like a step between spoken English and written English. An alphabet that's supposed to be more phonetic and less visually confusing or intricate that is like a bridge between spoken and written English for people with dyslexia. Still fairly new, hasn't really been researched a lot, but yeah, the basic idea behind this is that it's kind of taking it back to that original connection that most people's braids are primed to make, which is between meanings and sounds rather than meanings and letter combinations. That's how most people's brains are primed. We were talking about Sam, Daniel's girlfriend, earlier on. It seems her brain kind of processes languages a bit differently to most. Yeah, she, um, she tends to process it as a purely written thing. So yeah. in other words, if I was to try and learn another language with her, she might do really, really well in the writing and reading but struggle with the speaking because when she reads or writes, she doesn't actually hear what she's reading or writing in her head. As a result, she often doesn't know how how the language should actually sound, hmm. which is very unusual. I'd never heard of that. But apparently the president of the Scottish Gaelic Society, which I belong to, apparently he ha- he has that problem too, hmm. actually. So it seems it's a bit more common than previously thought. But, yeah, that would be a pain in the ass when it comes hmm. to learning just how to speak as a kid. 
Because, I mean, obviously she speaks English fine, that's her first language, but she was a selective mute when she was little and it took her a while to actually to learn how, how to speak properly. Her speech was a bit delayed. But in, And that's even the case. We're learning Gaelic together and she's doing really well with the written language and reading it and writing it, but, yeah, she struggles with the speaking for that very reason. So, but this isn't about my girlfriend anyway. So this is upspell. So, unspell, uh, uh, sorry, yes. unspell. So it's about... So, I mean, it's got a very good cause trying to teach dyslexic people how to read because, I mean, it'd be difficult to function in society if you can't read. Yeah, and, that's... um, And this is something we were talking... Uh, we did touch on this last episode as well. The fact that saying that dyslexia means that you have difficulty reading is more the effect as opposed to you know, how our dyslexic mind actually is built and how it makes connections. It's only, as, as Callan said last episode, it only really becomes a problem when um, literacy is the standard of education and uh, literacy you know, is, is such a crucial access point to you know, reading and knowledge and academia, and you know, not just academia, but of course, you know, um, in a literate culture, day-to-day lives. You know, you certainly notice that when you kind of yeah, you know, most English-speaking um, countries, obviously, you can see that's a very literate culture because, you know, we talk in terms of the written when we say, you know, hashtag this even, you know, hashtag obviously is a grapheme, so mm-hmm. that's a tie to our literal, uh, you know, um, or when we do, uh, or when we make air quotes, you know, quote unquote, whatever, rather than saying so-called, because so much of our communication is tied to the written form, whereas some languages don't even have a written form. Yes, um, that's something to remember. Yes, I've heard that too. Um, hmm. But I don't actually know very much about Unspell. I mean, I don't know how effective actually is it. Yeah, um, uh, as far as I know, I don't think it really has been tested yet. It's still fairly new. It's still fairly confined. It's more just sort of an, it does have a website, but it's more just sort of an idea. So I imagine it would be it, – it does address kind of a few of the main workings of the dyslexic mind, such as um, kind of the tendency to – kind of auto-rotate symbols, I guess, just sort of because uh, you're kind of very primed to, like, rotate objects in your head. If you see... Can you think of, like, two different letters that are just the one letter kind of inverted or rotated or...? Rotated or inverted. So are you thinking about letter combinations? Oh, no, not not letter combinations. Okay. So um, let's take, for, for some people, the P and the B. Yeah, it depends on how you write it or what font you're using. But in certain fonts, a P is just an upside down B, or you could equally just say, you know, a B is an upside down P. Yes. Um, so you know, we look at those as yeah, people who aren't dyslexic can quite easily kind of look at those and see them as two different letters. Hmm. Whereas dyslexic person, because uh, you're more primed to kind of use your visuospatial sketchpad, you look at those and sort of just recognize, oh, okay, so that's just the same thing. It's just been moved around. It, 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 it's a bit like, say, if uh, someone was holding, like, a pen in front of you hmm. um, and they kind of flipped it upside down, like, you know, it was, still, it was on the table, like, it had been shifted a bit or, you know, the tip was at the bottom or whatever, you know, you wouldn't be going, oh, like, you wouldn't, like, not recognize the pen suddenly. You wouldn't hmm. go, oh, that's a that's not, wow, you've, like, that's yeah. sorcery. You've turned it into a completely different object. That's, that's um, very interesting. I never yeah. thought of it like that. I, I mean, I do want to say I did see a website that said Unspell is getting actually got a, a glowing review, mm. but they didn't have the review. That was all that was said on the website. It's like, yeah. okay, you can say that all you want. I want proof. Can I read <laughs> this this review? Yeah, I don't know exactly how rigorous it is, but yeah, cer- certainly the idea of making a dyslexic-friendly alphabet that is not attempting to replace the English orthography at all. Um, no, it's for specific people. Yeah. But, I mean, by the same token, it, it was also talking about the fact that the English alphabet, uh, sorry, not the English alphabet, but the English spelling system, rather, is actually something of an accessibility issue, not just for um, dyslexic people, but also because it's kind of taken for granted that you'll be able to memorize what are essentially kind of random combinations yeah. of letters that will correlate to you know, certain pronunciations or certain sounds. Sounds to meanings, that's a more common sort of mm. you know, like predisposition, psychological predisposition that human beings have. Most human beings, I will add. You know, I, I certainly do hate it when you know, people talk about this is one of the things that make us fundamentally human and, say, people with ADHD, don't, this is diminished. 
oh, this neurodiverse person doesn't have this so much because, in effect, they're saying they're less human if you put those yeah. two things together. But, yeah, most people are better with putting meanings to sounds rather than meanings to letter combinations, unless they're your girlfriend, perhaps, or people <laughs> like her. Um, yeah. So people take it for granted that you will be able to memorize all these letter combinations, the sounds they all go with, all these exceptions, uh, because really it's been described as something of a bordering on kind of like a savant type, even skill, to mm. be you know, a good speller, so-called. It's not an ability you really should take for granted. Um, yeah. No, on that, I mean, I'm actually a, I'm an appalling speller, to be honest. Mm. But it doesn't really matter because I tend to type everything nowadays and yeah, the spelling gets checked. So That's the thing now. And, you know, when people of you know, a certain generation where spelling was kind of drilled into more kind of complained about the fact that everyone uses a spell check now. It kind of is this issue of, well, it's not really... I at least don't think that should be what literacy is about. I think mm. literacy is, you know, about the actual your creativity with language, your your expression of the ideas. Oh, exactly. Um, and concepts, and you know, it's not necessarily the orthography because that's the thing. People kind of equate they equate literacy with knowing how to spell. Spelling basically means memorizing those all those leather combinations, the thousands of leather combinations. And that's mm. what they also see as it's considered this great the sign of education mm. of intelligence and, you know, even your self worth to a certain extent. I mean, even oh. people who now still use spell check like yourself, Daniel, mm. you know, still say that they feel like they've failed in, in some way not to mm. learn how to spell, even though it's actually, you know, it's a very specific skill that some minds are kind of more primed for than, than others. It's not something that's going to come naturally to everyone. It, it is a very, very specific skill, you know, so, so a bit like, I don't know, like playing the flute. <laughs> you know, mm. so say if you are someone who tried and failed at, you know, learning to play the flute and you're not very good at it, mm. um, fine. Some people are good at it, some people are average, some people can barely do it. Um, yeah. But it's a very specific, arbitrary, and you know, really unhealthy thing to ascribe your self worth to. Well, I would. Well, first of all, I would say I think music's actually not as specialised as a lot of people make it out to be. But that's a discussion for another time. Oh no! But I mean, I mean you know, a specific instrument. Yes. Yeah. But I, I will say though, I don't know. I, I don't like people who are who are really spelling snobs. Like, for example, I mean, if we were to view language as a tool for communication, which it is, but it, that's not all it is. But if we're going to view it as in that way, well, then spelling is actually really isn't necessary at all. Because as long as the first letter and the last letter are intact, the middle letters can all be jumbled up and you still know what word it is. Oh, that old thing. That is actually something... Two, mm. two things with that. Mm. Something of a myth. Apparently, well, I've, they I've, can't be... I know I've seen those like you know articles yeah. where they have like kept the first letter and the, and the last letter in place and jumbled the others around. But for one thing, apparently it does actually matter. It's not like any combination of the middle letters will work. There are some combinations that will work and some that won't. And secondly, unless you've actually are familiar with, you know, how the word would be spelt normally, you won't be able to understand them mm. put into any random combination. So that, that's not like the best example of what you're... But yeah, I, I certainly agree, in essence, with the point that you're making Spell, here. Spelling snobs, I, I don't know. I just don't get it. And I do find it annoying when, like, if someone... The, one of the... The president of the Scottish Gaelic Society, when he's teaching, he uses... When he's talking about grammar rules and he mentions you, plural, like you mean you lot, he says use. Hmm. which is a very Aussie thing to do. Yeah. Except a lot of people say, oh, can you not do that? That's just really, it's lazy. You know, how is that lazy? Hmm. It makes sense. It's logical. Use. Many you. <laughs> it's like, God, you. what is, does it really matter? It hmm. makes sense. It's creative. Why does everything have to be homogenized? Well, yeah, that's the other thing of, um, you know, like being, Neurodiverse, I'd say you also have uh, many people who are neurodiverse also have this natural kind of questioning uh, sort of instinct to like this. They won't immediately like buy into a certain social construct or whatever. So, you know, the reason why, you know, you're supposed to cringe when you hear use, whereas, uh, you know, if, if someone talks about editing, so like, you know, this film won the Oscar for editing, you know, no one cringes at that anymore. 
But uh, 50 years ago, people, you know, would have, you know, you would have seen like <laughs> angry letters in a newspaper saying, oh, you know, editor is a word, but, you know, it's the Latin word meaning one who edits. It's not an English word. Edit is not a word. Who cares? <laughs> That's how language develops. <laughs> yeah, I know. Whereas now people have just accepted it. Yeah, so well, use... I'll... I still think there are a lot of snobs out there. <laughs> there are, yeah. And I, I actually do study linguistics and you know, people think, oh, okay, so you study linguistics. So Christian, um, what are you supposed to say, last or last? I'm like, well, it depends where you're from. <laughs> yeah, it depends what you were brought up hearing. I say last, but that's because yeah. I'm an Australian. Yeah, exactly. And you know, some people... Without even noticing it, when they you know when they sing us like if they're a pop singer or whatever, I mean, even if they're Australian, they find themselves singing last because that's what they're used to, yes. or, or a musical theatre performer or whatever. So um, it depends. It always depends on the context. I can tell you, you know, something. It's not about it being incorrect or correct. You know, inherently, you could probably argue, you know, correct or incorrect, maybe according to the context. You know, using slang in a formal setting or um, using overly formal language in a relaxed setting or whatever, or what have you. But even that, because that's so like socially defined, it's a social construct. So, you know, not everyone who's neurodiverse will necessarily mm. give that any credence. Yeah. Um, they won't see anything wrong with, you know, walking around the schoolyard if they're a kid and saying, you know, greetings. Yeah, <laughs> no. And I mean, I remember about social constructs, I remember there was one social construct I hadn't heard of. Because it didn't seem like a thing until someone brought it up. And there was a guy from my year level who was obsessed with the Beatles. And someone then said, why are you obsessed with the Beatles? And he said, because, well, I like them. She says they're dead. Well, only two of them are dead. They're not a band anymore. So? Okay. I mean, when was it a social construct to only like a band that is still a band? <laughs> like, well, yeah. I feel like that's a... A different thing altogether. Um, no, oh, no. But, you know, but, it's a social construct. I was thinking that makes no sense. If oh, you know, yeah. oh, I know. They rarely do. They usually – well, obviously, mm. they've come from somewhere, but, you know, sometimes they're rather um, – they've kind of got this historical basis that everyone's forgotten and is no longer relevant. Mm. Um, yeah. So, you know, even, uh, even this idea now that, you know, books are equated with – yeah, um, this kind of does tie in almost to the you know the spelling um, yeah. that books are equated with learning, specifically books, um, and other forms of receiving information are not. Yes. Um, yeah, of, of course. Uh, <laughs> there was the time when you know uh, books were the main storage of you know all, all academic knowledge and all sort of. Uh, you know, knowledge from explorers who would go out and encyclopedias were very much, you know, libraries were, they still are, but they're not the only mm. fountain of knowledge. Well, yeah, and times change. Mm. Like, I'll just say, I'll quickly bring up a scene from, actually, have you seen the the new musical Matilda yet? Yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah, yes. there was a scene towards the end, actually, where I think the Wormwoods are approached by a, a Russian mafia hmm. and Matilda convinces them to leave them alone by speaking to them in Russian. Hmm. And they ask, who taught you to speak Russian? I taught myself. I wanted to read a particular book and I thought I should read it in the language it was written in. Yeah, that was hilarious. <laughs> it was hilarious, but I, I don't know. I feel, is it hammering home that books will teach you languages but more modern-day information-giving materials or databases won't? Because I don't... I think the internet, actually, I mean, they were comparing it to television, but seeing yeah. as this musical was written recently, I'm going to include the internet. The internet makes language learning much easier now, one, because you actually have sound and it brings people closer together. Yeah. I don't believe in learning a language entirely from a book. It oh, doesn't, no, definitely yeah. not, no, because, yeah, books just, you know, language evolves too quickly for a dictionary to, a printed dictionary <laughs> to really stay in date for very long. But, yeah, Matilda, I gathered... I'm going by, like, the age of the television that they mm. used. Um, I think it was probably set... When did Roald Dahl write it? Like, 70s, I think? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, Something it was like set that. when the original book was... So, yeah, easily before internet. Before um, the internet, but I was just talking about modern technology in general because oh, I have a yeah. feeling that Roald Dahl seemed very against it. Mm. But I don't... Yeah. Well, he was a... Yeah, a cranky old man by he, that yeah. point. You've got to remember. So, you know, certainly love of learning is... Obviously, a very, very important thing. But the mm. fact is, you know, the means with which you learn, as as long as you know you're still learning in a complex, nuanced, you know, from credible sources in, a, in an enriching way, mm. and 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 if 
audio visual works better for you or if online works better for you or if, mm. yeah um as long as you're still getting access to that important mm. information i mean you know the reason why he was putting down television is because he was thinking of when television only gave you this sanitized commercialized view of the world yes um in its infancy that you know i sort of understand but you know obviously it's moved on from since you know obviously television is yeah. very different now to when he wrote matilda yes and that's why i think although i i did enjoy the musical i did kind of feel the story's kind of outdated in a way it is but i mean it's not like the you know the 90s film um mm. which yeah was sort of stuck in this halfway point uh, yeah because it's set back when you know that's what modern technology that's how it was um, mm. before computers really mm. took off. But then, we'll, yeah. yeah, we've got a bit sidetracked here, I'll say. We were talking about, you know, spelling doesn't prove your worth and being literate, being more more of a reader does not make you more of more of a person than someone who learns more through audiovisual mediums. Oh, definitely not. Which no. seems to be a viewpoint that's pushed, but quite subtly, yeah. I find. Well, um... What's important is, you know, it's not the medium. It's, you know, which books are we talking about and which, um, you know, audiovisual kind Mm. of pieces are we talking about. And how Um, you use it. Yeah. If we're comparing, like, a really interesting uh, classic piece of literature uh, with Er, The Bachelor, yes, I agree. Whereas, Mm. uh, you know, if if we're going with, like, a really hard-hitting documentary and comparing that to uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, um, Mm. then... I think TV wins on that front. So, yeah, the mm. medium is not inherently, you know, intellectual. Mm. Uh, it's what you do. It's always what you do with the tool. And, yeah, some, mm. you know, certainly relevant to neurodiversity. Some people find audiovisual completely confusing and they just mm. don't watch films, which, you know, as you can imagine, if you're a teenager telling your friends, you know, I don't watch movies, they go, huh? Ah. Whereas if you yeah. say, oh, you know, uh, I, I don't really like reading books. Uh, what was the last book you read? Oh, I don't really read books. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Whereas but if you say, I don't watch movies. Huh? <gasps> yeah. <laughs> except, I mean, when I tell people I don't really read books, it's always a shock to them because I study library and information services. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the library and information services is about presenting information. It's not about mm. reading books per mm. se. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Though, yeah, I can understand why that would pique certain people's curiosity. Hmm. Um, anyway, hopefully this has gotten you questioning about society's ideas of what education means and mm. and what you know, linguistic or like intellectual enrichment means. Because as you can see, this idea that you know books are everything is now really outdated. It's the content, not the medium. Yes, that matters. Mm. So thank you. Christian and Daniel, of course. So, just before we wrap up this episode, the other day I had the, well, I wish I could say the pleasure. It was more the interesting experience, I guess is the most flattering way you could say it, of uh, watching a new Indian documentary called The New Girl in Class, which is about autism. So, I mean, yeah, it's it's always certainly interesting to see how the issues of neurodiversity, or you know, rather neurodiverse people, are sort of manifest in in different countries and in different cultures um, and what things are different and what things are the same. And uh, from what I could ascertain from this documentary, which is about a girl who was eight years old, I think, yeah, at the time of, you know, the documentary's completion. So it's only about the first nine years of her life and she's autistic and uh, she has a twin sister. And it's basically about her early development, I guess. But it kind of seemed to fall into all of the potential pitfalls of anything that represents autism. For a start, like, it only got the first nine years of her life. So, you know, it's very limited in terms of, like, a biography. Like, who wants just the first nine years of somebody's life? Exactly. Um, I think it would have been much more interesting if, you know, they'd waited and we would have had, I don't know, like, her adult life in there as well. So there was that. There was the fact that, you know, her twin sister was interviewed, her friends, I think some were even interviewed. Her mum had a lot to say. Um, She's sort of an autism mum as well. Um, So pretty much everyone around her got interviewed except for Roshni's her name, her. So she was, even though this film was technically about her, she was more the object rather than the subject of this documentary. She didn't really get a chance to speak for herself. 
Yeah, um, it's not really fair, I don't think. No, definitely not. Especially since, you know, her sister got to have her say. And obviously, they're twins. They're the same age. Well, so, God, that's awful. Yeah, I know. They're making her sister seem like a zookeeper almost. <laughs> well, pretty much, yeah. And this is, gosh, I, uh, I wish I sort of knew a little bit more about this. Um, But uh, maybe this is just kind of the availability of, say, teaching aids um, in schools in general, maybe specifically in India. But her mum did eventually, she had this point where she said, I realised I had to be my daughter's teacher, friend and mentor. Mm. So she, her daughter doesn't have a teaching aid in school per se, but she kind of does. It's her mum. Her mum is in class mm. with her constantly. So she never, I mean, they talk about, you know, her social development being quite stunted. So, but I mean, you know, how far are they expecting her to progress when yeah, she's never had a day of school where her mum hasn't been there, as far as I can tell. Well, and, and you've With also, her through the whole day, yeah. And you've also got to consider it's probably not good for someone to have one person that seems to be their entire world. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, even in school, I was never particularly social. I mostly hung out with myself. Hmm. Well, but, you know, I was just happy to have other people around, even if I wasn't talking to them. Yeah, totally. That's real. To have my mum as my best friend, mother, and tutor, it's like, no, no thank yeah, you. Yeah, no. Yeah, and, and there's a part in there where um, <laughs> she tells her daughter at school, you know, okay, you know, go off. You can't just play with me all the time. Play with someone else. Hmm. That's, well, that's a bit of a, uh, you know. Well, again. You can't suddenly turn this on her. Well, um, yes, and play with someone else. My thought to that would hmm. be, well, where do I start? <laughs> yeah. Do I, yeah. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. Um, so, yeah, they talk about... Ah, look, it's basically just all these of assuming that the other kids are always in the right and she's always in the wrong. Yes. Um, so if they come up to her all excited, invading her personal space, yelling at her or yelling around her and she gets overwhelmed, you know, that's her fault for getting overwhelmed and not understanding, apparently, that they're just trying to be nice. Whereas if, you know, she's around them, like, flapping her hands or playing with her saliva or whatever – then, mm. oh, yeah, that's the other thing. Um, she did go through ABA therapy, which, you mm. know, by all accounts is very much like a actually rather scarring thing of forcing them to be normal. Um, mm. So, you know, any time she would, like, stim or do anything that she found calming, she'd be told to sit calmly, quote, unquote. Mm, yeah. um, well, I mean, playing with your own saliva is something that should be discouraged. But Yeah. But not to say that it's always her fault if, you know. Yeah. That even if, no, the other kids were overwhelming her, like they were yelling at her and so on. It's like, well, no one likes getting yelled at, so no, that's not her fault. And yeah. It sounds like it was a very poor documentary, and it's a shame that they would still make them nowadays. <laughs> I thought autism was more widely known. <laughs> oh, it's widely known, but not widely understood. This is the thing. I mean, um, it's more understood than it used to be. That's a step in the right direction, but I just thought an old documentary like what you've described doesn't sound... Well, yeah, yeah, no. Doesn't sound was... possible, but <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe that's the state. That seems to be the state of what you know, mainstream wise, maybe mm. internationally across most of the world. That, uh, mm. yeah, autism understanding. Well, is... so yeah, there's not a single um, autistic person interviewed. Yeah, on this documentary about autism. Mm. One thing that brought my attention to. A possible negative perception people seem to have of autism or Asperger's, and I mentioned this actually before we even did the podcast. There was this hilarious stand-up routine about gun control that was done by an Aussie comedian living in the USA called Jim Jeffries. Hmm. It was hilarious, but then there was this one part in which he says, apparently the guy who did the Sandy Hook massacre had social issues. So apparently he was, in his words, Asperger's as fuck. So... Does it sound sensible for someone to rock up at a gun show and go, guns? Does someone want to sell me a gun? I'm thinking, is that really your perception of Asperger's? I certainly hope not. I hope that was just, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's it, what is he, promoting this idea that Aspies could be dangerous? Yeah, pretty much. Which, because they're not, like, they're not like us. So, I mean, I think um, that's, oh gosh... That might even be a song lyric from, like, the villain song in Pocahontas. You know, they're not like you and me, which means they must be evil. Like, he literally says that. So, um, Yeah, which, which is a shame. It yeah. put a damper on an otherwise very good stand-up mm. routine. Well, look, I know. I do hate it when that happens. When you're watching something that's totally unrelated to autism and they have no idea what autism is. Okay. 
ask if you don't know. But yeah, then they throw in, you get this reference to it that's, you know, totally, clearly ignorant and gets everything wrong and is offensive and comes mm. out of the blue and, and, and you know, a, an otherwise great piece of media that's not related to autism in the slightest. And it's just, oh, please. Mm. And he, I just yes. wanted a day off. And he, <laughs> yes, and he just related Asperger's to a deranged man who killed 20 six-year-olds. Yeah, that's... um. That's really unfortunately, bad. Yeah, that's a pattern because, I don't know, there's lots of, obviously, lots of shootings in America. Oh, um, yes. Yeah. So, okay, maybe there was one where the guy happened to have, you know, Asperger's. Yes, um, there probably has been, but there were probably yeah. many others who yeah. didn't. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. But, um, you know, it's just... It's what people like, latch on to. Obviously, they, they fear the unknown and the different, and, yeah, some people never really grow up in that regard, unfortunately. Mm. But, you know, we're also taught by various pieces of media that, you know, different is bad and weird is bad. Yeah. Um, you know, we have our generic hero. I know in, like, all those animated adventures, our generic hero, where you just kind of project your own self onto them, and our weird eccentric villain. So if someone's weird and eccentric, ah, you're a villain, I see. Yes. You do realize this isn't an animated movie, right? Yeah. Yeah, but... Yeah. <laughs> yes, and, and like if someone if someone heard if one of the commenters on that video heard the way I interpreted his Asperger's reference, they would think, "Oh, you're just too politically correct. Come on, it was just a stand-up routine." What? Well, no, stand-up routines can push hmm. can push opinions. Oh, definitely. And no, it's not political correctness gone mad. No, no, it's because <laughs> that's oh. o- that's often used as an excuse nowadays. But... Oh, I know, but yeah, it's just because it's a fairly new mm. autism rights movement is, is still rather new. You know, mm. if you're if you're instead talking about you know issues of race and issues of sexuality, which are you know deserve mm. equal respect, that's a bit more familiar to people, so they'd understand. Yeah, whereas autism rights not talked about quite as much. But anyway, yeah, it's a shame that you know. I, I was curious to see, you know, an international documentary about autism and quite saddened to see that it got a similar it. state of affairs. Yeah, that it got <laughs> it so wrong. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> there are there are much better sources out there for understanding autism. If we make to their own horns, like this show, for example. Yes. Um, and you can indeed like this show um, <laughs> on Facebook, as we said earlier. Send us uh, submissions to our WordPress blog, gmtta.media at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Um, listen to us on the SID website, sind.org.au, Omni, mm. iTunes. And yeah, that does bring us to the end of the episode. Yep. Feel but... free to give us your opinions. Mm. We'll listen to them, even if they're ones we, we're likely to disagree with. Oh, of course. Yeah, mm. exactly. Yeah, great mm. minds don't think alike. So we're exactly. more than happy to engage with a mind that is not... Uh, our own. Mm. Um, so thank you very much for listening. That does bring us to the end. We'll be with you again in a couple of weeks. So stay tuned. Watch the Facebook page for updates about that. And of course, the Throwback Thursdays. All of our episodes are on Omni. Um, from the last couple of years, we have been broadcasting uh, and producing podcasting. So yes, thank you once again. You've been with myself, Christian. And Daniel. <laughs>